Welcome to the On Messianic Judaism podcast. Hi, this is Daniel Messim, and today we'll continue our series on the history of the Messianic movement by surveying the years in which Yeshua taught and how they provided a foundation for the movement that was to come. This is episode six in our series called The Growth of a Movement, How Yeshua's Following Grew and Matured. Now, this is a historical study. We're putting Messianic Judaism within the history of Judaism, not Christianity, Judaism where it belongs. How did the movement Yeshua led begin? How did it grow? How did it mature? And even more importantly, what were the seeds that were being planted for what the movement was about to become? So we have to step aside from 2,000 years of Christian theologizing and thinking and see Yeshua and his movement as it was. This is far from an easy task, for as Albert Schweitzer said, thinking that the great achievement of German theology was the critical investigation of the life of Jesus, Jesus as a concrete personality remains a stranger to our time. That is maybe too pessimistic, and maybe he wouldn't have written that if he had been able to read the Dead Sea Scrolls and other Jewish writings that have since come to light. Now, as we've seen in previous episodes, the Jewish people were expecting a Messiah. In part, they were expecting someone like Moses, as had been prophesied in Deuteronomy 18. And who was Moses? Above all, he was used by Hashem to be the deliverer of Israel from their oppressors, and he was the giver of the Torah. What about Yeshua and the beginnings of Messianic Judaism? Yohanan Hamatbil, as I like to call him in Hebrew, or John the Immerser, as his name is properly translated, was an enigmatic figure. Like Yeshua, his birth was shrouded in divine providence. Beyond that, his life itself is shrouded in mystery. He appears in the narrative as one coming in clothing from camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were being immersed by him in the Jordan River. So what was behind his enigmatic appearance and his attraction to the masses of people and his influence over them as they flocked to him to make Teshuvan to be immersed? One clue is that he was in Judea, and another set of clues are his clothing and his diet. Both of these have made a possible connection to the Essenes, a colony of whom lived an austere life in the Judean wilderness and had an extremely kosher diet, very attractive. James Charlesworth argued that Yohanan was only the most prominent member of a wide and diverse Baptist movement, including Banus, the Nasoreans, Abionites, Elkisites, and the groups behind the Apocalypse of Adam and the Sibylline Oracle Book 4. His intriguing suggestion is that Yohanan was expelled from the community because he declined to join in their hatred and condemnation of the Sons of Darkness, as they called non-members. But already, at that point, having already been bound by their rigid oaths, as Charlesworth sees it, he kept them and was careful to maintain a strict diet. Hence, he is depicted as eating locusts and honey, which are pure fruits. So Yohanan came immersing those who were repentant. This is in line with what immersion was understood to be in his day. 
Not only did immersion represent a change of heart and function, both in supportive induction and conversion of new members, but at least among the Essenes, it also marked the acceptance of a set teaching. In anticipation of the day when it was expected that all Israel would join the Yachad, the rule of the congregation in the Dead Sea Scrolls taught that the new members would read all the statutes of the covenant. They shall be indoctrinated in all of their laws for fear that otherwise they may sin accidentally. Sarek 6.13 reads, If any one of Israel volunteers to be enrolled in the party of the Achad, he shall be made to understand all the basic precepts of the Achad. Yohanan's immersion was a Jewish one, not according to Christian customs invented far in the future. Jewish immersion is a self-immersion with a witness as to what has been done, whether it's been done properly or not. Thus, we are told that at his immersion, Yeshua came up out of the water, but nothing said of Yohanan. There's no hint in the text that what Yohanan was doing was strange or questionable for either the people who were following him or the officials who came from Jerusalem, the Pharisees and Sadducees, to find out what was going on. In fact, one ancient copy of Luke says that Yeshua was immersed before him, Yohanan, that is, before him rather than by him. This tallies well with Yavamot 47b in the Talmud as it discusses immersion for converts to Judaism, saying, When he comes up after his ablution, he is deemed to be an Israelite in all respects. In other words, when a convert immersed and came out of the water, coming up, the words are, he is deemed an Israelite. It is complete. It has been done properly. Typically, in the Second Temple period, Jews had mikvaot in which to perform the ritual, but nothing was more pure and appropriate than the living water of a flowing river like the Jordan. It is following his immersion, then, that Yeshua began to recruit his innermost circle of disciples. In time, these disciples would grow from being Yeshua's students and assistants to leaders and eventually the leaders of the Messianic movement that Yeshua was starting. At this point, however, they were simply answering his call to follow me. In a direct connection to the preaching and message of Yohanan, Matthew describes Yeshua's appearance on the public stage with exactly the same message as Yohanan gave. Turn away from your sins, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Early in the account, and word for word the same, there's no doubt that Matthew intended us to take note. Yohanan and Yeshua had exactly the same message. This message is unfolded in the next chapters, in fact, the next verses, which roll into next chapters, which people call the Sermon on the Mount. This was a discourse delivered on a mountainside in the Galil, and it begins with blessings upon those who have admirable and exemplary heart attitudes towards God. It is a discourse delivered to Jews from the Galil who are hungry and thirsty for teaching. There's no hint of messianism at this point. In harmony with the prophets, Yeshua affirmed to his Jewish listeners that they were the Or HaOlam, the light of the world, that they would have understood as members of Israel. Then, in the clearest of terms, Yeshua's discourse continued with an affirmation of the authority and validity of the Torah, with a blessing upon those who do and who teach it. 
And then came the clincher. The hearer's righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes, the most fastidious observers of Torah. The hallmark of Yeshua's teaching was now laid bare. In the ensuing chapters, righteousness had to go beyond the accepted norms of the religious establishment, beyond what the Pharisees and scribes taught and practiced. While their observance of Torah was not questioned, something more was required. So there's the repeated refrain, You have heard it said, but I say to you. It was Yeshua's repeated refrain as he addressed a series of halachic norms. Each time, just as with the blessings at the beginning of the discourse, heart attitudes, the appropriate posture of the heart, was emphasized. And here, for the first time, we see crowds are following Yeshua. They came for his teaching, and he described them as sheep without a shepherd. Josephus would later write about Yeshua and say, About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man. Perhaps this is how people thought of him, hanging on his words. The Damascus document, popular among the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's a few copies of it there, and the Habakkuk commentary have much to say about an expected teacher of righteousness. The Serek Hayachad, otherwise known as the Manual to Discipline 1QS or Community Rule, says what some people were expecting. These are the words. When such blameless men as these come to be in Israel, conforming to these doctrines, they shall separate from the session of perverse men to go to the wilderness, there to prepare the way of truth. As it is written, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This means the expounding of the law decreed by God through Moses for obedience, that being defined by what has been revealed for each age and by what the prophets have revealed by his Holy Spirit. This one paragraph brings to mind what Yohanan HaMatbir was described as, one coming from the wilderness. And not only his teaching, but particularly Yeshua's. For Yeshua was one who expounded the law decreed by God through Moses for obedience. No wonder there were crowds following him. Whether or not they had studied the Sarek for themselves, its teachings may well have reflected or have been reflected in popular anticipation for what was to come. As Yeshua spoke, his rural Galilean upbringing was clear in his teaching. As has often been noted, the metaphors placed in his mouth are mostly agricultural ones, as would be expected from a man who spent the major part of his life among farmers and peasants. The city and its life occupy scarcely any place at all in his teaching. So it is that crowds are seen following Yeshua on various occasions throughout the Gospels. Yeshua's teaching and person were magnetic, and they were a phenomenon not only in the Galil, but also on his periodic visits to Judea and Jerusalem. So a people movement was beginning to form. And the question was, was he the teacher of righteousness that some people were expecting? Yet in the midst of the public following that Yeshua was gaining, he remained focused on doing good deeds, healing, teaching Torah according to its full intention. By the way, for this I would suggest listening to the Two Messianic Jews podcast on the topic of the fulfillment of the Torah in Matthew chapter 5. But Yeshua focused without deviation on Israel and the Jewish people. 
The very fact that he commanded his disciples not to go to the Gentiles or Samaritans is interesting, though, because it shows two things. First, that these groups were within the orbit of the Jewish world and his disciples might have considered reaching out to them. And secondly, that even so, Yeshua would allow no deviation to his mission to Israel. He specifically prohibited them from reaching out to others. As Yeshua's reputation grew, there are signs that he actually worked to that end. At least two times he commissioned his disciples to broadcast the kingdom of God, which was the kingdom he was preparing Israel for. On the first occasion, the core group of twelve was sent without any supplies for their travel, clothing, or money. They were to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Later on, as Yeshua traveled, 70 appointed emissaries went ahead of him to each location he was going to, as he encouraged them, saying that the harvest that could be reaped was a great one. It is clear that he intended to make a big impact. Yeshua's teaching was focused on the kingdom of God. Matthew 13 lists a number of parables that he told in order to describe its nature, its values, and its value. The message of the kingdom is likened to seed, which when it falls on good soil, grows and bears fruit. It is like a mustard seed, which though tiny, grows into a tree big enough for birds to perch on. It is like a treasure hidden under the soil in a field, or like a priceless pearl. Throughout there is the picture of a growing kingdom of tremendous worth. Without fail, Yeshua's kingdom of heaven was beginning to grow and at a rapid pace. At this point, Yeshua's following was firmly planted within the bounds of Jewish tradition and eschatological expectation. That's Jewish belief about God's expected future intervention in the affairs of Israel and the nations. But the nations are not the focus. Nevertheless, the seeds were being placed for a more extensive movement. Simon Peter was told that he was Peter, and upon this rock I will build my community, and the gates of Sheol will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will have been forbidden in heaven, and what you permit on earth will have been permitted in heaven. So here's a picture of a revolutionary community, the foundations being laid with leaders that are in some sense autonomous and independent from the religious establishments of the day. But all of this is still within the realm of Jewish thinking. As Yeshua's reputation and following grew, the message of the kingdom of heaven was a buffer against the activist element in Jewish society. Zealots, of whom one was in his disciples, were perfectly ready to reignite the wars of the Maccabees and cast out the evil rule of Rome. Theirs was a vision of a restored but purer and better kingdom in Judea, after the manner of the Hasmonean dynasty. If it had happened once before, why could they not rely on God's help to make it happen again? Against this tendency and the tendency to exalt him in a political way, Yeshua made it clear that his kingdom was not of this world. As he said in those very words, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting. At this point, Yeshua's activity seems to have been expanding. 
He taught in the area of Mount Hermon, way to the north in what is today the Golan Heights. He taught more and more in Jerusalem and Judea, and he developed a following there as well, teaching in the temple itself. And by the time Yeshua was at the end of his ministry, crowds were giving homage to him, waving palm branches before him in the manner of Hoshana Rabbah, the last day of Sukkot. And while Alfred Edersheim may be right that this was the traditional welcome of visitors or kings in the Middle East, there seems to be more to it. Their cries were from Psalm 118. Hoshiana to ben David, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hoshiana in the highest. Great salvation in the highest. It may not have been intentional, but these words too closely evoke the prayers for water on Sukkot and Yeshua's declaration on a previous Sukkot that whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. It seems reasonable to believe that at least some of the crowd had a sense for this figurative meaning for their actions. The gospel writers, too, seem to have understood this, as they themselves knew the messianic importance of Psalm 118, it being the source for Yeshua's description of himself as the stone which the builders rejected. So as we continue our journey through the history of messianic Judaism, we are going to see how this stone that the builders rejected did, in fact, become the cornerstone of a new movement. This new movement would spread beyond the Jewish people and eventually be co-opted by those who were sometimes even enemies of the Jews. Thank you for joining us and listening to our podcast. Do me a favor, take a minute to like this podcast and leave a positive review wherever you are listening to it. Support our podcast by going to onmessianicjudaism.com. Next week, join us as we come to the climactic nadir of the first phase of Messianic Jewish history with the death of Yeshua. Why did Yeshua die? My email address is daniel at nesim.org and I'm looking forward to your feedback. I'm Dr. Daniel Nassim and this is On Messianic Judaism.